seeing into our experience. And just this very simple practice. I think the other day I mentioned Sayadaw's pointing that the meditating mind is simple, not complicated. And if it feels like the meditating mind is complicated, then that's just an object. And yet this very simple mind reveals an amazing, kind of mind-blowing mind. The complexity of what that simple mind can see is quite astounding. Quite literally, our minds construct our lives. Everything that we experience, everything that we can experience, is a creation of our minds. I have the view or the belief that that creation of mind is related to something that's actually out there. So I do think that you're all sitting out there and that I'm not just giving this like Dharma talk to, I have the vision of a brain in a vat somewhere or something. So I do, I do think that there is something that the, that the mind is, is working with, is processing, but what we experience, our experience, is constructed. And because of that, because it's constructed, there's a lot of room for mistake, a lot of room for confusion. So tonight, this is the topic, this constructing nature of our minds. And I'd like to explore it through the teaching on the five aggregates. A teaching the Buddha pointed to in terms of kind of describing our experience, this phenomenological world of our experience can be understood through these processes of body and mind. The five aggregates can be understood as five processes of body and mind. The body, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. The word aggregate is kind of a funny word. It's not a word in English that we use very much. And that contrasts apparently to the Pali word, kanda, which is a more ordinary word. 
that means something like group or bundle or heap, heap of stuff. But in reflecting on the word aggregate, actually it's an interesting word to use for this particular for this particular um, teaching from the Buddha. Because the, this, this, this teaching around the five aggregates, it both is, is a teaching around the processes of body and mind, but also the results of those processes. And so there's a way in which these that body, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness can be understood as the processes by which our world is put together, but also understood in each case of being the things that are experienced. So in the case of body, for example, the body is this, this physical form, the four elements, and yet it's also understood as being kind of not only just the, the experience of the pressure, heat, coolness, tension, tightness, but the process that does that. And so the, the, um, the word aggregate can be used both in noun and verb forms. And much as this, the, in terms of the kanda, it's like the, it's both understood as a verb that, for instance, the feeling process is defined as feeling because it feels. And so it's defined as a process, but it's also defined as the thing that feeling feels, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And so it's kind of both a verb and a noun the kanda. It's both the process by which we experience and the things experienced. And the, the, verb, the word aggregate also has that quality. It can be used as a, as a verb to aggregate, which means to pull together, to draw together, to collect, to group. And it also means it can be used as a noun. It's a more technical noun as my understanding, it, it's, it can be used in terms of the, the main way I've heard it used in terms of a noun is aggregate rock. A rock is an aggregate rock if it's basically a rock made of other rocks. This is a great description of kind of what these khandas are. Sally Armstrong sometimes says, maybe we could just say that the that this khandas, we could translate it as stuff made of other stuff. So let's take the technical out of it. And so just briefly, I want to overview the five aggregates, but where I want to really kind of explore mostly this evening is the constructing the aggregate of construction, mental formations. And so, again, the five aggregates body, this process that 
is these four elements, earth, air, fire, water, the sensations that are felt in coolness, heat, lightness, heaviness, pressure, tension, tightness, vibration, pulsing, tingling, this whole range of physical sensations, plus also sight, sound, smell, taste. Now this is the the realm of the body. One thing that is particularly, I think, useful in terms of this particular list of our human experience, this particular set of of processes that make up our human experience is that in this particular case, one of the aggregates is physical and the other four are mental. And so it, it really lends itself well to this exploration that we're making of the mind because it does kind of tease apart the processes of mind, this, this teaching. And so feeling, the process of feeling, feeling what? Feeling pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. This is very simple mental process responsible for feeling and the simple feeling itself. We've talked about this in the groups, in, the, in some of the talks. You're all very familiar with this aspect of experience. And then perception, mental process responsible kind of for recognizing experience, categorizing experience, naming experience, the, the kind of recognition of concepts comes through this, this um, you know, recognizing what's out in the world as objects. This happens through the field of perception. So I, I look out into this room and see walls and windows and zabutans and people. And it's a process of perception, of recognizing it's connected to memory, this perceptual process. It's connected to having been exposed to zabutans and walls and windows and people that the mind recognizes them. It's almost like a very simple pattern matching um, mechanism in some ways, this part of perception, that we hear a sound and recognize a morning dove, that a pattern matching. I talked to the other, uh, at another talk around hearing a sound and identifying it, perceiving it as pig, and then later discovering that it was a bat. This is the process of perception at work. A recognition based on prior experience, based on memory of what something is. So perception includes this kind of naming of experience, but it also includes our, our kind of recognition of space and time. That's also part of perception. That, that we have a sense of, of, of distance and location and time. Perception, it's perception at work creating that understanding. At one point uh, in Hawaii, I was meditating, and there are lots of birds here, but the birds in Hawaii are kind of like birds rule in Hawaii. 
It's amazing how many birds there are, and some of them are very loud. <laughs> and I was, I was meditating in my room, and just it felt like this 360-degree, you know, bird zoo that I was in. And I, could, I experienced it sometimes, this sense of the mind kind of, almost like it felt like the mind kind of going out and locating the birds in space based on the sound. The creation, it was, it, it was, it was like this, this, almost a sense of floating in this space created by the mind through the perception of, of sound and through that perception of sound, the location. So this is perception at work. And then uh, volitional formations, the one I really want to kind of hone in on tonight, but just now briefly, it's more the volitional aspect of experience. The many kinds of volitional activities in the mind, emotions, thoughts, beliefs, agendas. This is a huge category of stuff. And then the, um, the last mental aggregate is consciousness. This simple function of knowing. Every experience is known. Whether we are mindful or not, this knowing process is going on, knowing, meeting, experience. And Sayadaw sometimes, sometimes uh, asks or says something like, you know, if you, if you um, meet somebody that you, uh, you, you've met in the past, you know, maybe you, you weren't terribly mindful while you were meeting that person in the past. But when you meet them again, you recognize them. And he says, why? Because perception and feeling and consciousness were doing their job. Whether we're mindful or not, we are perceiving, we are feeling, we are knowing. And mental formations kind of tumble along. And so these five aggregates function, they, they, are, they are the tumbling on of our experience. Every moment, the five aggregates appearing in some variation. The Buddha talked about this particular teaching a lot in relationship to the um, exploration of not-self. Carol talked about not-self last week, about exploring the self, studying the self, we forget the self. Forgetting the self, we become awakened by the 10,000 things. And so in a way, the, the five aggregates are a way that we can study. It is, the Buddha described that clinging to these aggregates was responsible for this creation of the sense of self. And so this, the, the exploration around these five aggregates begins to be a kind of a pointing to the, the not-self nature of experience. 
we begin to recognize as we open to noticing what's arising in experience that these five aggregates are just arising. That, thank goodness, a self doesn't have to figure out how to do these five aggregates. Because the complexity there is amazing. What the mind can know, understand, meet, how it functions. And yet, we cling to these aggregates and then attribute attribute a sense of self to the experience. One of the big... We can cling to any of these five aggregates. There's a a teaching where the Buddha enumerates 20 ways that identity views come to be. Basically, four different ways of clinging or identifying a sense of self around each of these five aggregates. He really kind of, you know, sorted it apart. And and I'm not going to go there. (laughs) I'm not going to go through the 20 kinds of identity view. But what I have seen in my own experience is that this this exploration or the, the, the aggregate of mental formations is a huge terrain of selfing. And the belief in the constructions that it makes as being I, me, mine, very sticky. And so starting to explore the constructing nature of this volitional formation aggregate can start And and this happens just through witnessing, being curious about volitional formations, which is what we're doing already, actually. We're already doing a lot of this. Because volitional formations basically encompasses so many mental activities that we're already looking at. Emotions, thoughts, states of mind, Tranquility, mindfulness, anger, frustration, irritation, bliss, joy, peace, ease, calm, concentration. These are all mental formations. They, are, they have some aspect of kind of intentionality in them. There's an um, aspect of... Um, the mind doing something, the intentional quality. Other forms of mental formations include intention. This, this, this moment, this, this moment before we act, before an action of body, speech, or mind, there's this like impulse that can be known as a mental phenomenon before the action happens. This is also a mental formation. Beliefs, agendas, views, these are also mental formations. Huge range of experience, which we have been opening to. Yesterday morning, and I, I spoke about the 
looking at the nature of the conditioned nature of our of our minds and by getting partly some of it is by getting to know the job description and carol also spoke about getting to know the job description of our of our experience of our of our mind states and explore the states themselves we see so the other piece around uh, volitional formations is there, there's just kind of a two, two sides to this. They are constructed and they construct. So they are constructed and we see that they are constructed. We, we start to understand that our, our mind states are constructed by seeing them come to be. We witness at times a thought arise in the mind. Somebody described something like this in one of the groups, you know, seeing a thought and then seeing how there's a tendency to kind of believe that thought and then create a whole state of doubt or confusion or anger based on just the arising of the thought and a belief in it. Seeing how it's constructed, how the... the um, the anger or the confusion arises based on this kind of construction around a thought that has arisen. So we can start to see the constructed nature of, of our mental formations. You've also all, some of you have also talked about the way that those mental formations then construct the way they influence our experience. Many of you have described seeing a kind of a, a filter or a, the arising of some kind of a, of, a, of a reactive state of mind, of anger, for instance, or frustration, and then seeing how that affects subsequent experience. And so the, the state itself is constructed, and then it tends to construct our experience. So this aspect of mental formations is really, it's the, it's, it's the, it's the engine of, the, of what our minds meet. It's the engine of the creation of our lives, this, this phenomenological world created through this engine of volitional formations. And so the uh, volitional formations are described as being these states of mind, frustration, anger, annoyance, love, joy, peace, ease, mindfulness, this whole range, beliefs, views, attitudes, so volitional formations are described as that, kind of this, the states of mind. But it's also described in one place as the verb, as the constructor. I'll read this in Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation. It does a a relatively good job of the play of words that happen in the Pali around the word that is translated as mental formation, volitional formation, sankara. 
in the in the Pali, it's like there's a a noun and a verb and a they're they're all based on this this word sankara. Tanasaro Bhikkhu translates this sankara as fabrication. I kind of like what that evokes because it really evokes this sense of the, the, the mind creating, constructing, fabricating, fabricating what we experience. And so he uses the word fabrication. And there's a point in the, in the sutta where the Buddha is kind of going through each of the five aggregates and saying, so why do they call it feeling? And he says, well, it feels. That's why we call it feeling. It feels pleasant. It feels unpleasant. It feels neutral. Perception. Why is it called perception? Because it perceives. What does it perceive? And he goes on to describe that. And so for fabrications, he says, why are they called fabrications? They fabricate fabricated things. So they're called fabrications. What do they fabricate? They fabricate fabricated form as form. They fabricate fabricated feeling as feeling. They fabricate fabricated perception as perception. They fabricate fabricated fabrications as fabrications. They fabricate fabricated consciousness as consciousness. This is why they're called fabrications. So in this place of the suttas, I think you probably noticed that basically the Buddha is pointing to here this, this, this part of our mind, this fabricating part of our mind, fabricates all of experience. He points to it fabricating the other five aggregates. This is a pretty amazing pointing. And a very kind of matter-of-fact way, these mental fabrications tumble along, creating form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. And so what these fabrications are has a huge effect on what is fabricated. So if the fabrication is anger, what is it fabricating? It's fabricating a body through that fabrication. The, the experience in the body when anger is arising can be one of pressure and heat. The face itself even can become distorted. I kind of touched on this yesterday. The, the mind state of anger affects the physical body. It fabricates experience in the physical body. This is my understanding of 
of a way to understand this. This is, may not be the only way, but it has been useful for me to explore it in this way. And so, anger constructs sensations in the body, fabricates sensations in the body. It fabricates feeling. When there's anger arising, there tends to be unpleasant feeling. Although to my surprise, actually, when I, one, on one retreat, I, I was really getting to know anger quite well. <laughs> there was an event that happened in the retreat that whenever the mind thought of that event, it, so it was pretty close, you know, something that had happened, there would be the arising of anger. And, and so I got to watch this process over and over and over again. And one time in watching, I, it's like the mind saw the very beginnings of the growth of anger, the thought, and then this just like this infusion of mm, a sense of aliveness, a warmth and a kind of a fullness that was really pleasant for about a split second before it turned to heat and And so very interesting to see this, you know, the constructing power of the mind there. And to me that was a, it was kind of a revelation because I could, in that seeing of that, the fabrication, the initial little quick fabrication of pleasant in the anger, it's like that understanding, there's the hook. That's why the mind likes this. That's why it goes there, that feeling. And very quickly it gets out of control. But there's a little hook there. So the fabrication of feeling. The fabrication of perception. When we're angry, we tend to see things through a lens of anger. We perceive things. We may, when there's anger, we may tend to perceive actions that other people are doing through that lens, believing that somebody is hostile to us because we have this perspective of anger. So perception is affected by this mental formation. This is true of all our mental formations. I'm just kind of walking through anger here to give a flavor for what happens. Anger tends to construct more anger. It's kind of its nature. The Buddha in one of his very succinct teachings saying, whatever one frequently ponders becomes the inclination of the mind. We're frequently engaging in anger. Anger is what is reinforced. Anger is what is cultivated. Anger is strengthened. And so the mental formation of anger tends to create more anger. When we're not mindful of it. When we add mindfulness into the mix, something else can happen. And consciousness is also affected by anger. I gave the example the other day of how Consciousness can be affected by an agenda. Last week in talking about delusion, how an agenda can actually have us be conscious of some things and not other things. That consciousness just doesn't receive certain things when we have certain filters. And so we tend to 
take in experience that we are kind of oriented towards. And so consciousness of some things will arise and other things won't, given this filter, given this construct, given this fabrication. And so seeing, seeing this fabricated nature is useful because we start to see that it's not personal. And we tend to, to take it so personally. We tend to identify with our volitional formations. It's a very strong place of identification. I am this angry person. I am this miserable person. You know, when I'm not miserable, I know that really what I am is miserable. Kind of creating this, this, uh, this identification and, and dragging along the idea of an identity around a mental formation. Kind of constructing of a, a permanent, kind of a, an idea of a permanent miserableness. But what we can see if we start to get curious about our mental formations, which we're already exploring, is their kind of impermanent nature. They come and they go. They're constructed based on conditions. We see that they're constructed based on conditions. And often we, we, we can start to see, it's almost like with that, with that, just the mindfulness taking in this constructing of experience, the mind begins to recognize maybe something along the lines of, who did that? I didn't, I didn't make that happen. It just happened. So we begin to understand the not-self nature of these constructions. So the mind constructs dukkha. Quite amazing to see this. The the Buddha spoke about this construction of dukkha in a teaching on dependent origination, which I'm not going to try to describe right now, but, but just to point to in that teaching, he pointed to some key volitional formations that kind of drive the creation of suffering. Ignorance, craving, and clinging. When ignorance, craving, and clinging are in the mind, it leads to suffering. And again, these are conditioned, they're constructed based on what we've learned, our conditioning from our lives. Talked about this some last week too, the the way we are conditioned by our cultures, 
by our families. Many of our volitional formations are not just personal. Our volitional formations are kind of absorbed through our cultural, familial experiences. This is very much a way our our minds are influenced by the collective. Views, opinions, beliefs, ideas, most of those are not our, our making up, our fabrication out of, out of just our own experience. They're coming in from our... We've been trained. We've, been, we've, we've, we've accumulated views, beliefs, ideas, and agendas from our cultures. And the views... Many of the views that come in through our culture are reinforcing ignorance and craving and clinging. I once, there was a, I I can't particularly remember the details of this ad. There are many ads that send this message of craving is good. Craving will make you happy. There was an ad of this guy sitting on a truck, a Ford truck, and he was surrounded by mounds of camping gear. And he's sitting in a meditation posture. (laughs) And the tagline on the ad says something like, in order to be one with everything, you gotta have one of everything. And this is why this person likes their Ford Explorer. <laughs> this is just, this is, this is, these are the messages we get. We get these messages from our culture. We, get, we are craving ignorance, clinging. It's reinforced. It's not personal. When we can see it as impersonal, it gets much easier, much, much easier to be curious about it and to watch it, witness it unfold. And again, when we bring mindfulness into the equation, when mindfulness is meeting experience, this is a wholesome mental construction, a wholesome mental formation. And this is the way the mind can transcend and shift so that it's no longer in that cycle of creating dukkha, out of ignorance and craving and clinging, cycling over and over again, creating suffering. With the insertion of mindfulness and wisdom, a whole different path can unfold. We cultivate wholesome qualities, the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, Rapture or or interest, tranquility, concentration and equanimity. These are mental formations. And they construct. They construct more wholesome experience. 
And so the five aggregates are the unfolding of our human experience, both the habitual and the reactive, and also the skillful and responsive. Love, compassion, wisdom, patience, generosity are formations that, mental formations that lead to the end of suffering, create the conditions for the mind to understand, for wisdom to develop, and for wisdom to release the suffering. There's another conditioned description of conditioned experience, transcendent dependent origination, which describes how when faith and faith and wisdom kind of come to bear on our experience, a whole different chain of experience unfolds. Delight, joy, concentration, happiness, seeing things as they are. This is different direction of the mind. And so here on this retreat, we are mostly exploring a very receptive kind of practice. Not trying particularly to stop the reactive kilesa constructions and also not trying particularly to construct the wholesome formations. And so how does it work? What are we doing here? This practice supports both the releasing of the unwholesome and the cultivation of the wholesome in some very natural ways. The perspective that we're bringing to our practice. Wise view, this perspective of being curious about experience as human experience, being curious about what is suffering and what is lessening of suffering, what is creating the mind to be tense versus open, relaxed, receptive. And so with that perspective of the mindfulness. We're bringing both mindfulness and wisdom together in how we are observing. And right there, we are encouraging those wholesome mental formations. Just the way in which we are paying attention to experience is encouraging wholesome mindfulness and wisdom. It's very simple, the way that grows. And as we explore mindfulness, with mindfulness, any reactive states, we explore a reactive state like frustration, for instance, or irritation. As we explore that with mindfulness and wisdom, instead of that, what what happens is like, instead of that construction, it it seems to put the 
the constructing power of that formation into neutral when we bring mindfulness and wisdom to it. So we bring mindfulness and wisdom to reactive emotions. And the, that reactive state no longer seems to be, when there's, when there's a, a strong mindfulness and wisdom, that reactive state is no longer digging its rut. It's no longer reinforcing the conditioning of that state. So something about the mindfulness and wisdom is stronger. Some of you have mentioned you know, the, the continuous mindfulness feeling like a great protection. It is a great protection. It protects you from unwholesome states. It's a refuge. And so as, as we um, open with mindfulness and wisdom to noticing those reactive states, it creates the conditions for those to not be strengthening. And actually, sometimes we see them actually vanish. And in that vanishing, aversion may turn to non-aversion. So this is weakening the reactive states and simultaneously strengthening the capacity, the, the qualities of mind, of patience, of kindness, of that allowing attention that we're exploring, of mindfulness, of wisdom, of concentration as the stability of mindfulness is encouraged, of tranquility of mind, not being so reactive and so the, the, pra- the practice that we're doing very naturally releases those unwholesome, unskillful states and increases the wholesome and skillful ones. We also start to get curious, and some of you have talked about states in which there's not a lot of reactivity happening And what we can be aware of then is the calm, the equanimity, the joy, the delight. And in contrast to the mindfulness being brought to unwholesome states, when we become mindful of delight and joy, it creates the conditions for them to strengthen, for them to arise more often. And so it does take some trust to enter into this very receptive style of practice, to not be in charge of the doing of it, and instead to be curious about what's being constructed right now and to witness it. While we're witnessing the constructions at play, we begin to understand something about impermanence. We begin to understand something about how this construction is just happening by itself. And so we see into these, and not trying to, not, not by saying, I'm going to see not self. That doesn't usually work out that well. But just through the curiosity 
impermanent, unreliable, not self, are revealed. And those, that wisdom, that arising of wisdom so powerfully releases and frees suffering. So let's just sit for a moment before we chant together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.